so the letter of James was one of the last books of the Bible to be officially accepted in the canon. It, uh, when you read it, you sometimes wonder, is this really in the Bible? Uh, all this stuff about true religion is everything you kind of want to say to people. Uh, but it was, uh, indeed, it was criticized and maligned uh, ever since that time when it was finally let in. Uh, and it was criticized as being out of sync with the rest of the scriptures, especially some of the more strict interpretations of Paul's theology of salvation by faith alone. Martin Luther in the 1500s is James's most famous detractor, uh, especially that inconvenient part in James that says, faith without works is dead. Of course, I am of the opinion that G James is certainly consistent with the gospel message of Christ. I think it may get a bad rap sometimes because James' words are not as easily twisted as other parts of the New Testament. When James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. It's hard to create alternative facts about our faith and say God only and exclusively wants our faith to be a matter of private morality, private salvation, and not collective liberation. Or when it says in the second chapter, but you have dishonored the poor, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was evoked over you? It's hard to preach a prosperity gospel that God shows fav God's favor by blessing people with financial success. And my editor, uh, who happens to be my spouse, told me to cut back on all these examples, but I can't help myself with chapter five, where it says, come now, they, and the lectionary skips this one. Uh, come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Listen. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Yes, uh, James, is, James is tough. James is tough. He's the author who says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. There's actually over 100 imperative statements in these short five chapters. 60% of the verses are commands. And James is clear on economic justice and labor rights. James has been a source of inspiration to social movements for centuries, and so it would have made sense on Labor Day to make an argument for labor rights, a gospel-based argument for worker justice and organizing labor. Uh, but... Uh, my colleagues have made that good argument already today, and we'll do more this afternoon. And uh, on Friday, uh, while I was trying to do that, uh, and spending much of my sermon time, sermon writing time, watching the homegoing celebration of Aretha Franklin, I felt a call to a different direction today. So how many of y'all watched the celebration on Friday? Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you've probably seen clips or parts of it on social media. I encourage you uh, to do yourself a, yourself a favor and go watch parts of it. Uh, it's not enough time to watch all of it. It was a doozy. Uh, but uh, it was a great way to spend a Friday. Uh, Reverend Barber called out, uh, uh, not called out, called in uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes and Minister Farrakhan to come back for a voter registration rally later in the fall. 
uh, had the Clark sisters, Fantasia, Gladys Knight, Stevie Wonder, and so many more. It was a historic occasion and a phenomenal collection of brilliance, talent, and love that we might not see again. I actually made the mistake of taking a nap uh, somewhere along the way and woke up in time for the eulogy. And uh, I'll let you go and read all the thought pieces uh, and social media prophets to explain why the eulogy was problematic uh, by uh, Reverend Dr. Jasper Williams. But he actually started with a quote that I found interesting. He was trying to get at this thing called soul. Uh, after the quote, it went downhill. But the, <laughs> the, the quote uh, was of Aretha Franklin's father, Reverend Dr. C.L. Franklin, in a sermon from 1955. And Reverend Franklin uh, was an acclaimed preacher for many years in Detroit and a gospel artist in his own right. And he produced a sermon alongside music on Psalm 23. And when it came to the third verse where it says, he restoreth my soul in the King James, Reverend Franklin explained soul this way. Soul is pretty hard to define. Nobody can really say what soul is. As close as we can come to define it is that it's that part of man and human that is a little bit like God. Or soul is a little part of God in us. Reverend Franklin continues in the original sermon saying, it's where one's ability to sympathize comes from. One's ability to be compassionate, unselfish, and not so self-centered. And so with that definition of human soul and mind, the little part of God that is in us, I want to consider on this Labor Sunday what type of soul work we want to be in the business of doing. What is the work of our souls? I think James must have experienced a great deal of rancor and infighting in the communities he was writing to. He is genuinely worried about the, pe about the way people are treating, or rather mistreating, one another, the way people are ignoring injustice, the way people are disrespecting and diminishing each other. He is worried about their soul work. James begins this section by saying we should stop blaming God for all our sins. We should stop saying that God is tempting us towards enmity and hate, for God does not and would not try to trick us into sin. Because sin for James starts from something little, but when full grown becomes soul death. And God the creator cannot be responsible for soul death. So let's stop blaming God. Something or someone is responsible for it, but it's not God. For James writes, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so this, to understand in the context, this is a major intervention on Greek cosmology of the time, which James was at once influenced by and resisting. Because according to Greek mythology, the light was brightest at the top of the divine hierarchy the source of life, the top God. And as the light travels down through the hierarchy with diminishing luminescence, it goes. So you could say for popular cosmology in the Greco-Roman world, the creator God was brightest and then diminished as it filtered down to lesser gods, to humans, to lesser humans, and so forth. But Christian theology at the time was busting that up and saying that the light of God is pure and whole 
wherever it shows up. That's how, the, that's how the author of James can say, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This means the light of God in each of us is fully light, not some diminished remnant. That is, that every act of goodwill, of generosity, is of the same stuff of the Creator. This world at its roots was formed out of generosity of spirit. A spirit of generosity flows from God's nature and through those in the Bible and in history who appear to us living out the will of the source of life, life-affirming actions and lives. It is, as Reverend Franklin said 60 years ago, this light of generosity that manifests our better selves, our souls, the little piece of God in us. It is through this that we are able to connect to others, to stretch our capacity for empathy, to feel the joy and euphoria of love in all its forms, in friends, family, lovers, comrades, and more. And so it should make us pause for a moment when the scripture says in verse 20 that the implanted word has the power to save our souls. This comes right after one of the more famous verses in all of James, where it says, you must understand this, my beloved, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Now, this was one of the Bible verses that I uh, memorized as a teenager. And it was beautiful to me because it had the added benefit of fitting my personality at the time. Uh, family lore is that I, I didn't say my first word until I was three years old. And uh, like many little brothers, my older siblings and cousins and uh, adults did all the talking for me. And sometimes I'm tempted to say that, you know, when I started talking, it was full, clear sentences. Uh, but it was actually four more years before I could actually say my name correctly. Uh, so I was slow uh, to speak. Certainly, this, this works for me. Uh, and I like the part about being slow to anger, too. Uh, somewhere along the way in high school, I realized uh, that I often had two options when bad things happened. I could be sad or I could be mad. And I embraced the sad. I really thought it was going to lead me to produce God's righteousness. And a few years ago, I started some therapy uh, when I started thinking about marrying Hershey. Uh, I thought it was the least I could do for her. <laughs> uh, and uh, the therapist kept on saying that I was angry. And I thought he probably was just projecting on me, since he knew I was an activist and an organizer, that I talked about racism and civil rights a lot. And perhaps that's why he thought I was angry. And so I, of course, would go back and tell Hershey that this, this uh, therapist thinks I'm angry. And uh, Hershey told me, uh, uh, channeling Freud, uh, that depression is anger turned inward. Uh, that concept may be a little oversimplified, but there is truth to it, and there's uh, science to back it up. Depression being anger turned inward. So maybe I was angry. Maybe I was angry. So I looked at this verse again uh, this week and saw it with new eyes. 
It says be slow to anger, slow to speak. It doesn't say don't speak, don't get angry. If the scripture really didn't want us to get angry at all, then it would have said so, I think. Uh, and I have to admit that this past week when I started sending those uh, petty emails and being more direct on conference calls, at least uh, knows this, uh, I, I started to feel a whole lot lighter. Uh, you know, it's like what Maya Angelou says, moderation in all things, including moderation. <laughs> moderation in all things, including moderation. Derek reminded us last week that God doesn't want us halfway but wants us in our audacious, radical, revolutionary selves. And actually, if you look closer at the Greek word for anger here, it's orge, which means something more like indignation. The direct translation would be settled anger. The uh, definition goes on to say that it proceeds from an internal disposition which steadfastly opposes someone or something based on extended personal exposure. For example, solidifying what the beholder considers wrong. It comes from the verb orago, meaning to team, to swell, and thus implies that it is not a sudden outburst, but rather a fixed, controlled, a settled indignation. And now there's little room for empathy in settled indignation. There's little consideration for the other, our neighbors. There's little room for God in us, for our soul to work with a teeming, swelling resentment taking up residence. There's only a mind made up, a stubborn, mental, and emotional block gone unmoved. And Sister Outsider Audrey Lord has an essay on the uses of anger. And for the context, she's writing and presenting to a women's rights conference that is dealing with particularly the issues of the feminist movement addressing racism. And so she uses white women as an example here, but I, I hope that you'll also open yourself to it. Uh, I've seen situations where white women hear a racist remark, resent what has been said, become filled with fury, and remain silent because they are afraid. That unexpressed anger lies within them like an undetonated device, usually to be hurled at the first woman of color who talks about racism. But anger expressed and translated into action in the service of our vision and our future is a liberating and strengthening act of clarification. For it is in the painful process of this translation that we identify who are our allies with whom we have grave differences and who are our genuine enemies. The uses of anger. And so that brings me to what do you do? This is the, the section that's a little even more famous of the scripture, where we're called to be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word. As some of you know, I've been staying in uh, uh, Brooklyn, uh, commute when I've been commuting back and forth. Um, and in Brooklyn, I've been staying with a five-year-old and a two-year-old and their parents. Uh, and the other day, I was walking upstairs at the end of day, uh, which is much earlier there, and I was walking up the stairs, and their mother walked out of the bathroom where bath time was in full swing. There was splashing and giggles and screams happening. And she yelled back over her shoulder to them, I don't hear you using your listening ears. And I impishly looked at her and said, how do you hear their listening ears? 
Now, when I asked my friend if I could use this example, she said I had to give a caveat that, normally, that uh, parenting is an agrammatical affair. <laughs> and that she, she, she makes total sense in normal adult life. I'll take her word for it. But I began to consider this same question. How can listening be seen, felt, and even heard? How can we listen out loud? Listening out loud is a concept I got from a professor uh, of mine, Della Pollock, who I got into a lot of trouble with uh, in Chapel Hill uh, when we were organizing against gentrification and, um, and other issues. And listening out loud in that context was uh, responding to oral histories, that you don't just archive them and put them in the library, but that they, they bring something out of you, that to listen responsibly to a story is to be changed by it. And actually, that a story isn't a story until it changes. That a story doesn't become thought and moved until it gets told, and each time is like jazz. It's only the same once. Um, and so when we act from a place of deep listening, uh, we also become responsible to ourselves and to others in a deep way. And so we ask ourselves, how can we not merely be hearers of the good news, but be good news? And the word here for doers is actually poetes. It's the same word for poetry. So the scripture is saying for all of us to become poets of the word, to find our lives, beauty, struggles, and our work in the spaces and gasp, gaps of gospel poetry. Yes, we are being called to soul work. When we give up too easily to desire or when we bottle up our hurt and pain and anger, the scripture says we give birth to sin, which becomes death when it is matured. This is soul death. But as the author says in verse 18, in fulfillment of his own purpose, God gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of God's creatures. And so we nourish the word planted in us. We nourish the divine seed of our soul. As Reverend Franklin said, the soul is a little bit of God inside of us. It is that thing that God gave birth inside of us with the word of truth. We nourish the God in us by being slow to let our anger settle and quick to listen deeply. Listen deeply to God. Listen deeply to those around us who God speaks through. We nourish the God in us when we take a day before responding to a challenging email or text or take a deep breath before responding to a sharp comment. We nourish the God in us when others can hear us using our listening ears. When we listen out loud, we nourish the God in us when our words become actions that draws the circle of community wider and wider, when we are doers and not merely hearers. We nourish the God in us by investigating our hurt, by not letting our pain fester, but rather letting our suffering get metabolized by the spirit of generosity into strength and a deeper hope. We nourish the God in us by chiseling away at fossilized hate and indignation. We nourish the God in each other because none of us can be whole alone. And yes, when we become poets of the gospel word, doers of the word of truth, it won't always be pretty. It may come out petty. It may come out in lowercase blues or it may come out ugly and tearful. But we can expect it to be ridiculed and laughed at, 
but there's always the chance that this soul work could change a situation. The more we do it, the more we practice soul work, listening deeply, keeping an open mind and heart, acting with compassion, the more we make room for others around us to do their own soul work, the more we can change a situation. Because this idea of the soul, a piece of God in us, the thing about having something inside us that is not totally of us, something inside that is strong, something inside that is beyond our control. That is, it gets to work on its own without us even knowing it. This is the miracle of being created by a loving, imaginative, imaginative awesome creator that our little spark of God, our soul, keeps on creating, sometimes in spite of us, and more often if we get out of its way. So maybe we hear James's commands, not as admonishments, not as commands, but more like we hear the commands of a loving parent. Wash your hands, eat your vegetables, brush your teeth. James says, no one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God because every good and generous gift comes from above. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Live your lives listening out loud. In essence, all of this is your soul work. It's good for you. Amen.